So what we should be focusing on as an industry is producing more kilos and selling more kilos, because that's the income part of it, and then focusing on profit. Lowest cost doesn't mean most profit. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all. Always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high health registered purebred swine in the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Hi, I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. Today, I have Simon Gray from Genesis. Simon, how are you today? I'm fine, Laura. I'm actually stuck in Ukraine trying to get home as I came and caught COVID. I'm now trying to get myself PCR negative so I can get on a plane and get home. So apart from that, I'm fine. I'm sorry to hear that. I hope you're feeling okay. I'm fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Well, Simon, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience today and let them know a little bit more about your background and how you got to where you're at. Okay, a bit of background. Um, I'm, I was born and bred in the UK. I studied agriculture after, after university. I joined PIC as a graduate trainee. Uh, my early career was all with genetics companies in the UK, right through to about 2000. In 2000, uh, me and my family, or me and my wife and kids, thought we'd move to the States. So I went to an interview with Smithfield Foods, North Carolina. Uh, while I was there, they offered me a job in Poland. They just bought a business in Poland, were setting up there and said, yeah, why not? Yeah, you can come to America and be another production manager or you can go to Poland and be the production manager. So I'm a little bit sort of shit or bust um, attitude. So I thought, well, let's go to Poland and see what happens. So I started there. Uh, we went from, well, we, when I started, it was 2,000 sows on an old state Polish farm. The first week I was there on 2,000 sows, they bred 13 sows. Uh, it was Greg Brown, who was Greg Brown, who was the guy that was I was reporting to at the time from from Smithfield, said, 
how are things, you know, when are we going to start making money? I said, Greg, we bred 13 sows from 2000 in the first week. <laughs> it's going to be some time. So anyway, we went from yeah, 2000 to 50,000 sows while I was there in five years. Um, towards the end of, end of my time there, uh, Big Dutchman, like a European equipment company, bought a group of Russians across to see what we were doing. Um, that group of Russians is now a company called Agrobelagoria, which is Russia's fourth largest producer with just under 100,000 sows. Um, yeah, they, they came to see and said, you need to come to Russia and help us you know, regrow our, our Russian pig industry. So 2005, I started working in Russia and I've been yeah, working in Russia and Eastern Europe really ever since. Great, great. So you've seen many different types of production systems since you started many different years ago. Oh, many years ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. Growing up in England, I've seen some very, very strange, unusual production systems, and our our crazy outdoor systems that we seem to have. I've also seen what the EU's doing. It seems to me that the EU's doing its best to destroy its to destroy its 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 pig production. You've got countries, yeah, like Denmark, like Holland, which are like technically extremely good pig producers, which are just being gradually made more and more inefficient by by regulations. Uh, today, my life today in, in in old Soviet Union is is big, new, fully integrated, what I call proper pig farms, fully slatted, all crates, yeah, everything, yeah, proper proper industrial productive pig farms. And so that was something we were talking about earlier is that they not only own the land and the pigs, but they also own other things like amino acid facilities uh, that are part of their business. So definitely a different type of integration model than maybe what our audience is familiar with. Okay, so a Russian fully integrated company, they will own the land, they will farm the land, they will be storing um, raw materials, they will be producing food. A lot of them will have their own premix plants some of them even have uh, their own rendering and their own amino acid production. Uh, they own the pig farms. They control everything to do with the pig farms, transport, maintenance, everything. Own slaughter plants, own further processing, and a lot of them have their own retail stores. Uh, the largest, largest company, Miratalk, have their own chain of supermarkets now. So everything is absolutely farm to plate under, under one ownership. That's really interesting. I think one of the things that intrigues me with all of this is when you talk about the integrated model in Russia and even some of the outdoor housing that you've seen in parts of Europe, are there commonalities, if you will, across all types of production systems that you've seen that, that you feel are issues today that we need to address? Regardless of the production system, we still produce the same thing. And we, we, yeah, we, have a, we have a very unusual business in that we only have one output product, and that output product is kilos of pig meat. From that point of view, we run very, very, very simple businesses. Yeah? We don't have a long list of products that we sell or produce. We have one. Yeah? Regardless of yeah, whether it's a, a 10,000 sow farrow to finish farm in, in, in Russia or a, a 300 sow batch farrowed outdoor farm in England, the, the concept of maximizing kilos produced is the same. That's true. Do you think that that is the key metric that we should be following today, or is there a different metric that we should be using? For me, kilos, 
yeah, kilos is the driver. It, it's always seemed sensible to focus on what you actually sell and what you get paid for. So again, we, we get paid, we don't actually even get paid for pigs in the pig industry. Yeah? That's one of, one of when, when I'm doing training, especially when I'm like, doing training in, in Eastern Europe for new people, like what is it that we produce? And everybody, like the classic answer is pigs. And I said, well, we don't actually produce pigs, yeah? We don't get paid for pigs. If you look at, look at the vast majority of, of slaughter returns, it's based on kilos, yeah? Because the pigs don't even, they're not even mentioned. So it's kilos, we produce kilos, yeah? Every business we're striving to, to produce more and sell more, our business is to produce more and sell more kilos. So for me, yeah, whether it's pounds, yeah, pounds in North America, kilos in the rest of the world, that's got to be the driver of the business. Yeah, it's true. So we continue to have those conversations here in the United States, right? We talk about pre-wean mortality, and I've been in conferences in Europe in the last few years where we're talking about IUGR pigs and the low survivability rates of those pigs. And I think we all recognize that ultimately, while kilos is the main metric, if we can save more pigs, then we should, in theory, have more kilos to market per sow per year. And, and so my question is, is, do you think in all of the different systems that you've been in that you found some commonalities as far as issues that, that we should be looking at or, or solely focusing on? to help improve survivability in that metric. Being a European and seeing what the European breeders have done with yeah, ultra prolific sows and then 20% piglet mortality and 12%, yeah, really, that makes it really, really, really for us as an industry to defend what we do, yeah. We sometimes, sometimes or even many times, we're our own worst enemies, producing more and more and more without any thought of to really how we're going to rear them or what we're going to do is setting ourselves up for the animal welfareists and for the people which attack us. We can't defend that by the time we get to weaning, 30% of the pigs that were alive in the sow are dead. That's, that's something that we have to address, yeah. So as you've traveled around, what are some common things that you see that we should be looking at in terms of survivability? A sow that rears its own pigs, really, yeah. There's... It's never made any sense to me having sows which produce pigs that they can't rear. A lot of, most, most of the problems are caused by yeah, sows, sows which can't rear the pigs that they produce. And then we start doing more and more and more crazy things, foster sows, nurse sows, moving pigs around. And it seems to me, um, if I go back earlier in my career, the one thing that I saw from outdoor sows in the UK is with, with outdoor sows which are free and if you go in and try and interfere with them they can chase you and bite you <laughs> you learn very quickly to do nothing and what I saw was the, the least you do to interfere the better yeah so the sows, sows which farrow on their own rear their own piglets with no interference what we need to be focused on, whether it's whether it's outdoor production, indoor production, and yeah, with a, with a, with the new freedom farrowing crates, and anything where the sow is not confined, you need sows that can do it themselves. Basically, they're wild animals; they'll protect their young. They'll do what they'll do what animals do. Yeah, there's degrees of risk to the human being of of interfering. So, so from from my point of view, 
a sow which you do have to do nothing to that will produce pigs on its own, will rear pigs on its own, really is where we should be going from a, from a production point of view. And also, yeah, from the, from the political point of view, trying to defend what it is that we do. Do you see some people starting to use that and identify those sows in terms of the survivability of their litters and incorporating that into their multiplication and in particular their nucleus herds? And then, of course, getting that passed down through the generations. Or do you feel like as an industry, we're not quite there yet? Yeah. And again, for Genesis, our Genesis, our primary nucleus farms in, in Canada, we on purpose do not supervise farrowing and we do not foster because we're aware that we need to produce that type of sow. Yeah. I work with other breeding organizations. Um, especially breeding organizations that are linked to commercial companies. Commercial companies are driven by lower mortality and all of all of the things that we do in commercial production to, and then they apply that to, to nucleus. What we're doing at nucleus level, yeah, our, our nucleus size today are our commercial size in three to five years time. What we do with our nucleus size today is what our commercial size will be in three to five years time. So if we continue to be giving huge amounts of supervision at farrowing, helping sows, huge amounts of cross-fostering, huge amounts of, of nurse sows. We are, to a degree, with, with whatever we do genetically and with genomics and stuff, there is still natural selection going on, of course. Yeah. So the way that we manage our nucleus farms, what we do on our nucleus farms, is, to a degree, naturally selecting for that type of animal. Yeah. My view, having yeah, nucleus farms need to be designed as a very, very commercial farm because ultimately <laughs> the pigs that we're producing on these nucleuses will have to grow in commercial farms and they need to be reared under commercial conditions. They need to be reared with few people. They need to be, yeah, they need, we need sows which look after them. As a company, Genesis are the European breeders because of the structure of Euro European pig industry don't they're just focused on more and more pigs and more and more insane ways to try and keep them alive which become more and more expensive yeah it's one of the reasons why yeah cost of production in north america is 20 to 25 percent less than it is in europe some of it's raw material but a lot of it is is the way that we farm pigs and look after pigs yeah we, we're creating systems in europe yeah i think that's something that i've seen over the last 10 to 15 years is that we continue to talk about sows farrowing more pigs and weaning more pigs. Um, but what we've also seen then because of that is we have seen this increase in the low viability pigs. And you can't help but start to wonder if there's some type of a threshold that maybe we should be looking at in terms of maximizing survivability, but then also uh, maximizing our profit potential. Yeah, something that we've seen with with our with our genomic work, yeah, we we use a commercial farm for for linking yeah, nucleus farms to 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 commercial farms genomically. So we, we've got a thousand sow farm that we use. What we've noticed is um, one of the things we're taught is we need bigger birth weights of pigs. Yeah, uh, Dr. Bob Kemp, who is one of the owners of Genesis and and main geneticist, actually. His, his history is in the beef industry. And in the, in the beef industry, they want a calf which is small 
so it's small and small and viable so it, it it yeah the cow can give birth to it easily it doesn't need assistance but then it grows fast and it, it seems looking at the way that we're we're yeah we're not looking for we're looking for even litters of birth weights around about 1.1.2 kilos what we've seen is if you start to to overfeed sows in late gestation yes you can increase average birth weight but what you actually do is increase variation so by trying to increase average birth weight you're creating more variation in birth weight which is then giving you more of these small little pigs yeah the other one that i see and it's a probably european thing as well is there's always this drive oh we want we want sows to do eight yeah seven eight nine litters i've always seen always always seen as soon as sows get past five or six litters you start to get the variation so why why we want sows to live a long time i really have no idea yeah because you actually you start to create all the problems that we're trying to avoid based on the principle of oh we've yeah we, we need a 35 40 percent sow replacement rate because it's in a book somewhere from history yeah so yeah, I've actually talked to a few others recently where we've had this conversation um, for years. We've focused on birth weight, and I think it's it's fine. It's a it's something we can measure, but I think at the same time, it's from everything I'm hearing, including you tonight, is that this is not necessarily the metric we should be looking at. We know birth weight is lowly heritable, and while it's something we can measure, it may not really be giving us the best selection. So from what I'm hearing you say, as well as what I've heard from others, is that we should be looking at the survivability metric to use with our sows in order to determine if this is a genetic animal that we should continue to propagate. We're actively trying to reduce the variation in birth weight. We know that once you get pigs over, it's, yeah, it's the pigs under a kilo that you tend to have problems with. Yeah, You would be much better off with 15 pigs between 1.1 and 1.3 kilos than you are with 15 pigs between 0.7 and 1.6 kilos. So, so getting, selecting for even, even birth weight, good even pigs, yeah. Even if you go back to yeah, when we, we've all worked on farms and you, you think back of the size that you need to assist, it's always, it's the big pigs. It's the, it's the big pigs that block the system. If you've got size with nice even little pigs, they can just, they can fire them out. They, because they farrow quickly, they're, they're viable. Everything moves on quickly. The size farrowing quickly. It's all yeah. So 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 thinking about what we're actually trying to achieve, and thinking to to achieve it without people. I, th I think if we go that way, we're we're going to end up with something which is which is more productive, easier for us to defend, and ultimately we're going to make more from it. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that I've noticed you know, when we talk about survivability and production, we tend to focus a lot on birth weight because that's something we can measure, right? That's our metric. And really what I'm hearing from you as well as more recently from some others as well is that that really may not be what we need to be measuring. While birth weight we can do, um, the reality of it is it's lowly heritable. And maybe what we should be doing rather is looking at that sow and looking at her litter and her survivability of that litter. And so what I'm hearing you say is that maybe that's the better option to determine if that sow is one that we should continue to, to use her genetics for. I would say you get a lot more variation 
with older sows. You start to see the variation with older sows. And now I'm starting to, to think more about what I've seen. Yeah, in, in Russia, historically in Russia, yeah, they, they like fat sows. It's, it's, it's something in, in what they like to see. So a lot of Russian farms will be feeding three and a half to four kilos, bump feeding the sows before farrowing. And then you get, you get huge variations in litter size, yeah? They, oh, we've got 1.6 kilos average birth weight, and you go and see the farm, but then you see these 0.6 kilo pigs and these two kilo pigs, and all sorts of problems. So, so if I, if I, with the knowledge I have today, thinking back, old sows, you get variation. Um, I see litters of 20, 20, 21, 22, 23 pigs, which are nice and even. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Uh, something that we probably should take more time to think about. I know when we're busy with our sows and our farms, you know, we, we farrow those sows and we immediately think survivability and we start cross fostering. And I'm not sure how many people really take the time to think about some of the things that you just discussed. And so I think that's really interesting and, and something we should think more about. Yeah, well, what, what I've seen, so I, I, I think of myself as my history, historically a production manager. And I always the, the people, like our, our geneticists, our nutritionists, we've got PhDs and doctors and all extremely clever people who understand the biology. There's the, and then you've got guys who work on pig farms because of the nature of pig work and the competition they've got working in McDonald's. By definition, we don't get the cleverest people in the world working on pig farms. Yeah, They're dirty, dirty, smelly places to work. Yeah, You don't see the light of day. You're working long hours. In, in not great conditions, we're not going to get the best people. So we, we somehow need to be able to, to transfer the knowledge of the, of the doctors and the PhDs and create systems that the people who, the reality of the people that work on pig farms have the ability to follow through. So keeping, keeping stuff really, really simple, not complicated, is what gives us a good result. Yeah? And that's from, from what I see, and I see it you know, time and time and time again. As soon as the clever people try and complicate what happens on farms, the, the, the people on the farms get confused, and it, they actually make the situation worse. I think that's very true, you know, and it's something we think about when we do our SOPs or our standard operating procedures, as we call them. You know, it's very common when we start out, we have good intentions, and our SOP book will be, you know, fairly decent size, but not, not over expansive. But over time, we start adding and adding and adding to our SOP list so that it becomes almost overwhelming for our caretakers to be trying to manage taking care of the animals and, and doing their daily tasks and yet trying to manage all of their SOPs. And then the reality is that SOPs tend to be written. And the reality is that there are people on pig farms who can't read. So why, why you would create an SOP in a format that the people that are actually following it through can't follow. One of the successes of IKEA is their instructions are they work in every single language and anybody can follow them. Creating systems and, and giving things for the guys that work on pig farms a way that they can be successful rather than setting them up to fail with systems that they don't understand and they can't read and they can't process. That's yeah, our way forward for, for everything is, is, is simplifying understand the people who we have working on pig farms, make it easy for them. Let's make it possible for them to succeed rather than trying our best to make them fail, which is most, most of what we do today is, yeah?
I think that's interesting. And it's something I remember when I was doing research with sows, you know, it wasn't uncommon for us to do not only the research activities every day, but we would also do the pig care for those animals. And I can remember times where the pig care activities would take easily a half a day to do. And I'm talking taking care of a hundred sows. I'm not talking of the two or three times that, that our average caretaker has. And, and so I agree, we need to keep it simple so that they can get through their activities and still have plenty of time to do the other things that they might need to do during the day, like repairing equipment or, you know, helping out with some tasks that, you know, that the farm's been waiting to do and they need to get those done. Yeah, and it's all, and it's all basic care, yeah? Certainly in Eastern Europe, there's a, high, there's a very, very high percentage of, of people who work on farms are women. A lot of those women are mothers because by definition, they care, yeah? You've got the, the vets, oh, oh we can't allow, we can't allow the, the ladies that work in Farrowin to treat the pigs. And well, why not? But kids, they understand, they understand when their kid's not very well. They understand when the pig's not very well. Just give them a single antibiotic. Don't complicate it with six because that will confuse them. And then you've got, yeah, with six antibiotics, you can treat nothing effectively because you've then got to decide what's wrong. Just the, the ladies that are there, they recognize something's not very well. Give them a single treatment that's 90% effective and it will be 90% effective. Just keep it simple. And, and you do that and magically stuff starts to work. Yeah, That's true. You know, and I think that's something we need to think about is that if we're keeping it simple and, you know, we're likely lowering our cost of production as well, which some people would say, oh, no, that's not right. But really, when you think about it, if I'm keeping it simple, um, my workers are getting their, their activities done, right? The animal caretakers are, are getting their activities done for the day and they have time to do the other tasks. Um, one of the common things we hear in production is, well, we need more people because we're not getting our tasks done. But sometimes it might be that we um, can simplify our tasks so that they can get more work done and then we don't have to hire the additional people. And then of course that helps keep our costs lower. But on the other side of that, Simon, I think it's really important that we talk about that profitability. And, you know, we're always focused on lower costs of production, but as you've indicated, profitability is really important too. So is there a way that we can bridge the two of these together? That's another little, something that I, I've been thinking about during lockdown is, yeah, I, yeah. In, in, in my history, I worked for Smithfield Foods, who are probably one of the world's best on managing costs of production. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, just, it's just part of the culture, yeah. What I've thought more about and, and been think is we should manage profit, not manage cost. Because managing cost, ultimately managing cost is just a race to the bottom. Yeah. If you look at other industries, you don't need to have the lowest cost to make the most profit. Otherwise, Mercedes and BMW wouldn't exist. Yeah. Apple wouldn't, there wouldn't be an Apple iPhone. They're not the cheapest. So what we should be focusing on as an industry is, is producing more kilos and selling more kilos, because that's the income, income part of it, and then focusing on profit. Lowest cost doesn't mean most profit, yeah? We have, we have lots of assumptions in our industry. We assume, we assume that all pigs convert food in the same way, so therefore feed conversion is the most important number. Well, pigs don't all convert food in the same way, yeah? Different, different genetic companies have produced a pig which utilize feed in a very different way. So fee conversion isn't the most important number, yeah? 
um, cost of production isn't the most important number. What the important number is, is the difference between what we can sell a kilo of pig meat for and what it costs us. So if we can produce something that we can sell for more, even if it costs us more to produce, we can make more profit. Or if, if we can produce more of something, or we can sell more kilos of it because it's more tasty or more people want it, even at the same cost, we can make more profit. So actually thinking about profit rather than cost. Yeah, always we're gonna control cost, but you don't have to have the lowest cost because the lowest cost, the lowest cost is, yeah, the lowest cost will take us nowhere. We'll just end up, we'll end up with nothing left because we're just chasing cost all the time and we forget entirely about the end product. Apple start with, with the design of a product that people want and then they produce it. They understand what they can sell it for they then produce it to the quality they want, then at the lowest cost, yeah? <laughs> Big production, the guys in the, <laughs> the end product is chosen by the guys who work on the pig farms. And they, they might choose, a, yeah, they'll choose a genetics-based, oh, this is going to give us the lowest cost, regardless of whether they can sell. So you, you've got the decision as what's produced is, is by the base producer. It doesn't happen in other industries, yeah? Then we produce all this stuff, and then everybody's surprised that, oh, well, the consumer doesn't want to buy it. As an industry, we do many, many things backwards. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, we design pig farms based on I want. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you never. We don't design pig farms based on the end product that we can sell to the consumer. Then how are we going to produce that efficiently? Our farms are based on oh, I want. Yeah, I want, I want this number of farrowing crates. I want my doors there. I want windows. Yeah, or I want, I want, and then suddenly, I want becomes an expensive pig farm. And then we, oh, well, I've got to sell the pigs for more money because I've designed this expensive pig farm rather than starting with the product and going backwards. So, yeah, we, as an industry, as an industry, we're not really very good at what we do, yeah, because we do everything backwards. I think that's an interesting concept. Certainly when we think about profitability, how we define profitability is different for every producer. Right, certainly an integrator is going to have a different definition of profitability than an independent producer. So the concept is we only sell one product, which is a kilo and profitability then is, is selling the most number of kilos from our facility and at the biggest difference between what we can sell it for and what it costs us to produce. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, profits. Yeah. Profit is, is sales minus cost. So you've got sales volume, kilos times the value, less what it costs us to produce that, that kilo. Yeah. And yeah, and so I, I, what I see more and more is that our, our chase for cost ends up ends up with us producing something that consumers don't particularly want. So how do we change our product? If our product is one, how do we change it? We change it by really understanding what the consumer wants. Yeah. If you look, if you look at the North American market and you look at what the high value, what the high value cuts are. They're the cuts which are fatter and tastier. If you look in the East European market, yeah, the East European market, the most expensive bit of meat's neck, yeah, which is the fattest bit of meat. The, the only there's one bit of the world where ham probably has more value than anything else is is Northwest Europe, yeah. But Northwest Europe has quite a big influence on the world because you've got four of the five yeah, global genetic companies are Northwest European. Europe does everything wonderfully and Europe thinks that we should be making everything more expensive because of the environment and because of animal welfare and stuff. And yeah, Europe's very, very, 
it, it's created a market which is expensive, but it has to protect it from from products from outside. So we have a huge amount of influence on this this northwest European market, which has driven us to produce yeah, very very ultra lean, tasteless pork, which nobody really wants to buy. Mm -hmm. We are starting to see a little bit more duroc coming into the marketplace, so you know maybe that will help with flavor and and some of the color issues. Um, but you know, it is interesting when you talk about that, because when you do go to the grocery store today, I am able to find meat like Duroc raised meat or Berkshire raised meat, but it's definitely off in its own little corner. And it's definitely not the mainstream. It's not right there in the center of the grocery case. It, it definitely is off in its own little section. We want people to eat more pork. Yeah. Basically, yeah, we've really failed as an industry to to grow per capita in consumption. We've grown consumption globally because the population's increased. And we've grown it in countries that were extremely poor where the economy's grown. If you look at the developed economies, we are, yeah, poor consumption's flat. And at the same time, chicken consumption's tripled or quadrupled. We've really failed as an industry to get people to eat more pork, yeah? And I think if you look at if you look at the chicken industry, if you go and buy chicken, you know, yeah, there's four cuts, and it always tastes the same. You know exactly what you're getting. There's no there's no risk with chicken. Yeah, with pork, with pork, you've no idea. Now, I, I yeah, in England in England lots of years ago they decided to stop castrating castrating boars. Um, yeah, my my whole all of my income, everything that my family lives on, comes from the big industry. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had we had people around for dinner, and my wife bought a shoulder of pork and cooked it. And it was yeah, it was from a boar. It tasted like shit. Yeah, horrible. But yeah, everything we own is from the pig industry. Stopped buying pork in the UK <laughs> because of one experience and yeah, one bad experience put her off. And she said, "If I if I've got people coming round again, I'll buy chicken, I'll buy beef, I'll buy lamb. I'm not buying pork because I'm not going to take the risk." Yeah. Yeah, we, we have we have to get pork so that you know exactly what you're buying. We you get a consistent product, yeah. Consistent consistent and tasty. And we're we're bad at both, yeah. Very consistent. You know exactly you know the weight of it, you know exactly what you're gonna get, yeah. I think it's interesting that you bring up the poultry industry because I, I would agree when I go to the grocery case and I buy poultry, um, it is consistent. It is it's pretty reliable product, um, but at least here in the United States today, you know, we are seeing that the poultry industry is starting to have some meat quality issues, probably from some of their genetic selection. So I, I wouldn't say they're immune to what we're talking about today with pork. Yeah, well, they're not immune to it, but the, yeah, the issues the issues are when you get lack of taste. Ultimately, we eat food in our in our bit of the world. There's bits of the world where they'll eat anything because there's no food. Yeah. But that's by by definition, we're not going to grow too much too much business in countries that can't afford to eat. So in in the countries that can afford to eat and can that can choose what they spend their money on, we need something that people like. Ultimately, is is tasty and consistent. When you go out on the shelf, you know absolutely exactly what you're going to get, and then we'll sell more of it. Yeah? So how do you see the pork industry moving that way? I think it's a very interesting concept. Um, but you know, how do you envision the pork industry moving that direction? Well, one produce 
produce what I'm saying, produce consistent tasty pork is the first thing so that we actually deliver on, we deliver on what we deliver on. Yeah, I, I, yeah I've, I've seen the trend in, in, in the States with you know, things like Duroc. I, I now live in Spain. In Spain, we have Iberica. <laughs> Iberica products are, are quite consistent because they are consistent. Yeah. <laughs> we then in Spain, you have that, like the commercial white production and then you have Duroc. But there's, there's little control on what the Duroc is. Yeah, a Duroc, a Duroc is a breed of pig. Yeah? And there's lean Jurocs and there's fat Jurocs. There's a lot of variation in there. Probably what we need to do is start to focus on on a product and and yeah, trying to tell the, the public a, a Juroc or a or a Yorkshire or a Landrace. People don't care, yeah. The vast majority of people aren't farmers, they don't care. They almost don't even want to know that their what they're eating had a name and it was a breed, because then that's associated with, with our dog and our cat and yeah. Maybe, maybe get away, get on to actually taste and product, get away from what the breed is and trying to, and then also trying to get away from justifying how we produce it. Yeah. Car manufacturers don't sell cars on how they produce the car. They sell it on what the car does. Yeah. Sure. Car manufacturers don't sell it on, oh, it's from the best factories. They sell it on what it does. Yeah. We try and justify, oh, <laughs> it's been reared in, yeah, in, yeah pig-friendly farms, blah, 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 organic food, blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. Yeah? It's not fair. A small minority of people that can afford to care, care. The yes. people have a budget and they're interested in, if I spend if I spend $5 on a bit of meat, I want it to be tasty. If I spend $5 on it and, I, and it tastes like crap, I've wasted $5. Yeah? So I, I, think it's, I think it's focusing on, yeah, how do we, how do we sell more? We sell more by producing what? people want to buy and what they'll buy more of they'll either buy more of it or buy more of it and pay more money for it it's not very complicated and then stop trying to justify all the other stuff that we're yeah like antibiotic free antibiotic free is going to stop us selling pork because it tells the housewife well if that's antibiotic free that means the one that isn't antibiotic free has got antibiotics so uh now i'm confused I'll buy something else, yeah? Some of the stupid things we do as an industry, like remarkably stupid things we do, which we believe are, are good marketing, actually work against what it is that we're trying to achieve. Confusing the people that buy our product, yeah? All pork is antibiotic-free because it's the law, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> have to, yeah. Any, any antibiotics they're given when they're sick, when they're growing, like we take antibiotics, they have to, you could have withdrawal periods and it's all tested. So all pork is antibiotic-free. Regardless of whether it was treated in its life, pork is antibiotic free. All these these dumb, stupid things that we do, yeah? How stupid are we, yeah? We're never ever, 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 ever gonna challenge chicken on being chicken. So why why would we even attempt to pretend that we're chicken? Why wouldn't we one chicken is very consistent and people like it, it's also cheap. So by competing with chicken, what we're actually doing is driving our, our sales price down. Why wouldn't we compete with beef and lamb and the, the meat that people want to buy, they can't afford it. So if we can get nearer to the, to the higher value by producing something that's tastier that people want, we'll either sell more of it or we'll sell the same amount at more price or ideally we'll sell more of it at a higher price and make more profit, yeah? Very good. Well, Simon, I see that our time's about up. Are there any other final points that you'd like to share with our audience? No, I think, I think I've, I've been babbling on and 
<laughs> got my point across. So, yeah, same thing in different ways. But um, well, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I think it's been very interesting to listen to you talk, particularly um, because of your experiences around the world. And I think it's important for our audience to think about that because we do really get caught up in what's happening in our own little part of the world. And we sometimes forget that we are really selling a universal product. If I go to Europe, I expect to buy the same pork chop essentially that I'm buying in the United States or something very similar to it at least. And so, um, again, I think it's really important that we remember kind of globally, we all have the same goals and that's to create that safe, wholesome quality product. It is time to our famous three. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestal manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Gestal is not just manufactured by an equipment company, but by a family pork production business with a slat-level understanding. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. So we'd like to end our podcast with a couple of common questions to our speakers. And so the first question I have for you is what swine book do you use as a resource or a reference? Around swine, to be honest, nearly all the books are outdated, yeah? The trouble is because we're, yeah, we're a very simple industry, but, but, but science is progressing very fast. A lot of the reference books go out of date so fast. I've tended... I tend now just to use the internet, and, and with the internet, you can, like, I can, yeah, you get up-to-date information, you can filter out the stuff which is advertorial and, and selling product versus the stuff that's actually genuinely interesting. Yeah? I, have to, I have to process stuff so that there's common sense. If I can't see the common sense in something, then I, my, my mind doesn't process it. So, so today, I, I used to have a, a, a book from when I, when I was in university from Colin Whittemore, on, yeah, on pig production, that used to be like my Bible, but I don't even know if I'd know where to find it at home anymore. So today it's the internet. Yeah, I can see that. I'm very quick to jump on the internet and click something to see if I can find my answer rather than grabbing a book and, and trying to find it. And it, yeah, we're busy. It's, it, yeah, to, yeah, to troll through a book and find the bit you want also takes time. Yeah, with, the, yeah, with the internet, you put the word in you want and it'll fire up bits that, uh, yeah. So it's more convenient. Are there any books that you're reading outside the swine industry that you're enjoying now? I recently read Sapiens, which I found I found yeah, really, really fascinating. <laughs> Probably the most fascinating thing is that that uh, or, or the theory is that our success as human beings is that we can we can believe in things that aren't real. <laughs> we're the only animal we're the only animal that can actually organize organize ourselves around believing something that's not real. And that's that's why we're being successful which is probably, it's a little bit frightening, but it's probably very, very true, yeah? But that's how we invent things, right? We believe it exists and then we create it. Uh, yeah, our, our ability to have imagination and, and believe in things that aren't real. And then some, yeah, from a lot of the things that we believe aren't real, we create things that are real. So our last question here is, if you think about people that you know that you feel are successful in the industry, what are some common traits that they have? 
in my opinion, the ones that understand understand what it is that we're trying to achieve and focus on it. Yeah, we have an enormous amount of bullshit in our industry. Yeah, we have an enormous number of products. Yeah, if you look at the the amount of products that you can put in food, which make things better. Yeah, you can actually end up with no food. Yeah, a thousand kilos of byproducts, all of which everything's going to make things better. Yeah, uh, we, we have we have a huge a huge amount of of um, like witch doctor stuff. That, and I, I think the really successful people are the ones that understand, yeah, our business is about kilos. The ones that understand more throughput, let's sell more and let's produce it efficiently and let's produce it at a cost that we can make profit. I think ultimately the people that get that are the ones that are successful and will drive our industry forward. It's a really great point. And in fact, I think it summarizes our conversation today really well. And that's about keeping it simple in the barns so that we can maximize kilos produced and focus in on being profitable, but doing it in a way where we remember that we need to do it in a way that our consumer wants. And by following those few steps, we could have a very successful business. And it's sort of, it's sort of common sense, yeah? It always sounds simple, right? But basically it is simple, yeah. yeah. One, of the, one of the best farms I work with uh, one little bit more. Yeah. In, in Russia, most farm managers in Russia have got a higher education. There's one particular farm I work with. Um, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. They can't get anybody with a degree to go and work there. So, that, so the, the staff are uh, like from the local village, not very well educated. They just do what they're told to do. It's probably one of the highest in terms of kilos, kilos per square meter. It's up around about 550 kilos per square meter. That's kilos sold per square meter of nursery and finisher. It's the highest performing farm I've seen. It's not the best farm in the world. It hasn't got the highest born alive. It hasn't got the highest anything. It's the most productive because the guy, they just, they just, okay. Yeah, they just follow. Well, Simon, thank you for your time today. We certainly hope you make it home very, very soon. Me and my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure she's probably wondering where you're at. I should yeah, hopefully at the weekend I'll get home and then over a couple of weeks and start traveling again. Wonderful. I think that sounds like a great plan to get home and get a little rest. Uh, we certainly do wish you the best, Simon, and we do thank you again for your time today. We wish you all the best and take care. Excellent. Thanks, Laura. Bye-bye. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.